And if you're here with me, would you please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians this morning, we're starting a new preaching series, taking a little break from Matthew. And we're looking at the signs of a healthy Christian. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, chapter 13. The first sign we're looking at this morning is love, love. Let's read the text, the passage first. 1 Corinthians, we're actually going to start in chapter 12, in the last verse of chapter 12, verse 31. It says this, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. I was a child. I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And then 14, that first phrase in verse 1, pursue love. I want you to remember what it was like going to the doctor's office for your physical exam. How do they assess your health? What kind of tests do they perform? Well, the first signs that they're looking for are the vital signs, right? So they're going to check your blood pressure, your heart rate, respiratory rate. If those things are abnormal, then you're in trouble. And then they'll move further into testing. Then comes the up close, the personal, poking, touching, even hitting with the hammer. They're looking for abnormalities, discoloration in your skin, lumps, bruising, a bad reflex, delayed motor skills, etc. And then for a a really thorough physical exam, they're going to send you to the lab to get blood tests. They might want a complete metabolic panel that would indicate irregularities in your kidneys, liver, blood chemistry, or your immune system. I think I just reminded all of us why we don't go for our regular checkups and exams. 
why we neglect those things. Doctors perform all kinds of tests to assess your physical health. Now, what and how do we assess your spiritual health? How do we know how you're doing spiritually, Christian? What kind of tests do we take you through spiritually? What are the signs that we're looking for? And that's the question that I want to answer in this new preaching series, the signs of a healthy Christian. And some of these you're going to see are vital signs. If you don't have them, then you are DOA. You're not alive in Christ. Others of these things are just healthy habits that improve your strength, your stability, and growth in Christ. And if they're lacking, they can lead to spiritual atrophy. And even in some cases, spiritual catastrophe. And so what are the signs of a healthy Christian? And are these signs evident in your life? See, I would love for you to self-examine, not cross-examine. Okay, this is not for your husband. This is not for your wife. This is not for your kids. This is not for your neighbor sitting next to you. This is for you. I want you to assess your own signs, your own spiritual health. How are you doing? How healthy are you spiritually? Are you DOA, dead on arrival, not alive at all, no signs of spiritual life? Or are you in rapid decline because of the disease of sin? You're giving in to a a sin that is enslaving you, and it has your spiritual health in a decline. Or would you say you're just coasting? I'm doing okay. I feel healthy, feel good about my spiritual life. Some of you might call this, the it's been called the spiritual plateau. Hey, I'm just kind of even keel. Well, you know what's at the end of every plateau? A cliff. And if you're not growing, then that's actually not a good sign, not a good thing. And so, is there an aspect of your spiritual health that you've neglected and that needs attention? Okay, so self-examining your spiritual health, how healthy are you? Christian, or do you have any life at all, non-Christian? These would be some signs that you want to see evident in your life. You want to be working on and continuing to work on in Christ. And if you don't have some of these things, you may not know Christ at all. And the first sign that we're going to look at is love. Love is the first fruit of the Christian life. Love. You need to know that love is a vital sign. If you don't have it, then you don't know Christ. You don't know God. John the Apostle makes this explicitly clear. 1 John 4.8 Anyone who does not love does not know God. You also need to know that love doesn't come from us. It's not something that we can conjure up within. It's not a a feelings-based thing primarily. Love comes from outside of us. It's given to us. In fact, 1 John 4, 7 says that love is from God. So you know, or you should know, that the love that the world fabricates, what they call love, is, is fraud. It's fake. It's not real love at all. True love comes from God. It comes from having relationship with God by his loving sacrifice, and then turning out to love others in the same way he loved us. 
And so that if you don't have love and you, you don't know God, if you love in any different type of way, then that love is not from God. It's directly tied to your relationship with Him. In fact, if you put God's love up next to the world's love, you would not see a resemblance. They're different. God's love is selfless. The world's love is selfish. God's love is unconditional. The world's love is chock full of conditions. I only love you if. God's love endures forever. The world's love fades, ebbs and flows. God's love never changes. The world's love changes. God's love is tied to the truth. The world's love is divorced from truth. Different kinds of loves. So what is God's love? That's the question we need to ask. What is God's love? What does God's love look like? That's what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. God's love. God's love. If love is the pulse of a Christian, then 1 Corinthians 13 is the stethoscope that will identify if love is in you. Do you have this kind of love? Do you have this kind of love? In this passage, we're going to see the four P's of love. Okay? The four P's of love. And self-evaluate our own love to assess how healthy we are. And I just want to say up front, before we get into the text, sometimes uh, people will stop me after the sermon and say, wow, pastor, that was a really convicting message. And I'll tell them this. I usually tell, say something to this effect. If it was convicting for you, how do you think I felt all week sitting under this text, knowing that I have to preach it, and that if I preach it, I'll incur stricter judgment if I'm not applying it. And I just want to say this is one of the most convicting texts, passages, and topics for me. And I, I hope that you feel it too, that, that we need to grow in love. That what we think is loving is often not meeting God's standard of love. God's standard of love is the highest. And so if we fall short, we need to grow. Because this is an important sign, an important attribute, an important characteristic. It is the preeminent fruit of the Christian life. What's on the first? What's the first uh, fruit of the Spirit that's listed? Love. So this is important. Let's look at the four Ps. First, the priority of love. Speaking of first, priority. I started back in chapter 12, verse 31, because there's a really important point here. I want to give you some context on the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul is correcting a church, and this church is in chaos. They're allowing sin to, uh, be, to be existing in their church. They're immature, and they're divided against each other. And one of the problems has been that they see certain individuals with sign gifts, the sign gifts like gifts of prophecy, uh, speaking in tongues, healing, they see those people as more important and distinguished from you know, the rest of the average Joes that can't do that. So they extol these gifts, the spotlight gifts, the ones that get a lot of attention, and they say, oh yeah, everybody else is less important. Well, Paul addresses that issue specifically in chapter 12. He says every member of the body is important for its growth and function. Sometimes the unseen parts, like our organs, 
are more important than the seen parts, like our hands. And so every part or member of the church should be recognized as a gift from God for the sake of the church's spiritual growth and function. And in fact, especially because of this tension, thinking they're better than everybody else, Paul says something. He pauses. Chapter 13 is really a pause to highlight the most important thing. And look at what Paul says at the, in chapter 12, verse 31. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. He says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Well, what, Paul? What's more important than the sign gifts? What's more important than speaking in tongues? What's it more important than prophecy? What can be higher than that? What is this more excellent way? Well, if you have an ESV Bible in front of you, what does your chapter title say? It's the way of what? Love. That little subtext, it's not inspired, but that little subtext above chapter 13, it might say the way of love. This is the most excellent way. Higher than even these incredible, extraordinary gifts. And so let's go then through chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul emphasizes the point that love is priority. He does this through hyperbole. Now, a hyperbole is a figure of speech. You're exaggerating to, to make a point. That's what Paul does here, verses 1 through 3. And look at how he does that. Let's look at verse 1. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Well, that would be extraordinary, wouldn't it? Not only if a man could speak all the languages of men, but he could speak the language of angels, if, if there was such a thing. He could talk with any man in any language, any foreign language, and also talk with the angels. That would be extraordinary. We'd say, man, that is a gifted individual. That is a talented person. That's impressive, wouldn't we? You look at what Paul says. He says, but if I have not love, he says, the sound out of my mouth is like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm tempted. I won't do this. I'm tempted to take a drumstick up to Armando's crash and bang that thing over and over and over again. I won't do it, Armando. But I'll just tell you, if those aren't played tastefully, they're annoying. More than annoying, it's a shrilling sound, deafening even. You'll probably walk out if I did that. That's what Paul says. That's, that's really the sound that comes out of your mouth if you have not love and you can speak all these languages. It's off-putting. It's ineffective without love. Go to verse 2. He says, if I have prophetic powers... Prophetic powers, prophecy, you'll see, is the most important spiritual gift for the foundation building of the church. That was for a time, this gift was most important because they didn't have the complete canon. And so God's word came through God's men. Those were prophets. And so Paul says, if I have prophetic powers, which is just extraordinary power, he says, and if I understand all mysteries and knowledge, that would be a person who has the entire catalog of God's divine revelation all mapped out and understood in their heads. That is a smart person. A wise person. That's extraordinary wisdom. And then he goes on to say, if I have faith to move 
mountains. Remember what Jesus said? If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move that mountain. This is extraordinary power, extraordinary faith. Paul is describing, at that time, the highest position and the person with the greatest ability in the church. This is a powerful, a wise, an able man that he's describing here. And then he says this, but if I have not love, he says what? I am nothing. Worthless. Meaningless. Unable and ineffective. Nothing. Talk about bringing you down to size. Power, wisdom, and ability fall at the feet of love. They're worthless without it. Love is the linchpin. It's greater than even these things. Paul continues, he says, If I give away all that I have, verse 3, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, can you think of a greater act of charity than to give away all that you have? Do you think of a greater act of devotion or religion is to be a martyr, to give your own life for the cause? These are like the highest deeds that a person can do for religion or, or an, as an act of devotion. He says, but if I have not love, he says, I gain nothing. In other words, you gave everything for nothing. You suffered even to the point of death, for nothing. No reward, no acknowledgement from God. Without love, these great deeds are a big waste of time and energy. That's how important love is. Love is a priority. It's essential. It's the linchpin of our religion. If, If what we do is without love, it's nothing, it's annoying, it's fruitless, it's ineffective, and it gains us no reward. Do you see how important love is, Christian? Can you say that, you know, I pursue love first and foremost, above all the rest of my religious life? Often not, right? Often we're pursuing to do other things better and not pursuing love as most important. It's a priority. It's a priority. Maybe you don't have to be convinced of love's priority. Maybe you recognize, yeah, love is really important. But maybe you need help understanding what love looks like. What does love look like? So let's look at point number two, the portrait of love. The portrait of love. Now, these next verses, verses four through seven, might be familiar to you. Okay, It's the great love section of the love chapter. You might have them memorized. Love is patient and kind and so on and so forth. You might even have these, this, this verse or these verses up in fancy lettering in your house. Right? Some of you do. It's okay. It's a good reminder. But have you really stopped to think about what this means? Or how these characteristics are applied in your life? That's what we're going to consider this morning. This is a beautiful portrait of love. Some call it the greatest description of love in the Bible. And I would agree. But only if... Only if you realize that when Paul sits down to paint this portrait with brush in hand, 
the object is not a thing. It's a person. Think about Paul being an artist with a brush. He sits in the artist's chair. The canvas in front of him is 1 Corinthians 13. He's trying to show the reader what love is. And you want to make something powerful. Don't tell me. Show me, right? Show me what love is. And so he paints his portrait of love. And you need to know that the object that he paints is not a thing. It's a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is these things. Jesus Christ lived these things. He he brought these things to earth in the way that he lived his life perfectly. And so you've got to see Jesus when you see this description of love. You've got to see that it really points to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as the excellent display of God's love toward us. And so I hope to highlight that as we go through each of these characteristics. It's interesting, when you look at these characteristics, they are in verb form, they're not adjectives. In other words, love is expressed in action. Love does. Love doesn't just feel a type of way, but love does. And so love is identified by what it does and what it does not do. So let's look at these. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Love is patient and it is kind. I want you to know that if this were a highway and each of these characteristics were turns, I'm off the road on the first turn. Love is patient. My wife will tell you I'm not a naturally patient man. Love is patient. Patience means to bear up under pressure without retaliation. People are pressure cookers. We all are. Got different triggers and different levels and a different limit to where we explode. We're all pressure cookers and and people in life cause us the most pressure. When that pressure builds up, how do you handle it? Well, a patient person bears under it all. You know, some of us lose patience with a child. Another with a coworker. Some of us losing patience with people in the church. Everything from little annoyances to big mistakes to significant hurts and even some significant attacks from people. Those things all build up pressure. How do you handle that pressure? Well, patience is like the weightlifter who stays under the weight. Doesn't break, doesn't fall, doesn't drop the weight, but he stays under it. That's a picture of patience. Not losing control. Not retaliating. Not saying something back. But just taking it. And remaining patient. Patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. If patience is the defense, kindness is the offense. Patience is bearing with the pressure. Kindness is returning an act or a word of benevolence, good, to another person. Kindness is expressed in in many ways, attitude, word, and deed. You've heard the phrase, well, he has or she has a kind face. What does that mean? They're approachable. They're warm. They're usually smiling. They're inviting Kindness also builds up others with the words. It says kind things. That doesn't tear somebody down, but it builds them up. It's for their good. And kindness also acts for the good of others. 
to do what's best for them. You know, kindness is, let me help you. Hey, let me take that off your plate for your sake. Can I carry that for you? That would be kindness. And then following up on those actions. Not for any return to me, not for, you know, the, the pat on the back or, or some kind of incentive to get something later on. No, no, no. Kindness is solely for the well-being of others. It's essentially selfless. Christ was kind, wasn't he? He was kind. In fact, he describes himself in Matthew 11. He says, I'm, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And then he says, my yoke is easy. Actually, that word is kind. He says, my burden is kind. And my burden is light. Someone who is kind is attractive. They never lack a companion. Are you patient? Are you kind? Now Paul presents the opposite of kindness. He goes to the negatives. What love does not do. Love is patient and kind, but now love does not. And what you'll notice with these characteristics is that they're all selfish in nature. It's all about you. And love is not about itself. Love does not promote itself. It doesn't speak highly of itself. It doesn't make itself the center of attention. Love is selfless. Now, notice what love is by what it does not do. First of all, love does not envy. Envy is to desire for yourself what another has. So it's not good enough to just not steal. Well, I didn't take what they have. Love is not envying, not even desiring what they have for yourself. There's a variety of things you could desire from people. You could want their power. You could want their position. You could want their privileges. You can want their pleasure. See, here's where you'll see a big difference between God's love and the world's love. The world's love is envious. It's envious. Let me just give you one example of that. The world's love has been, become over-sexualized. It would equate love with lust. And that really is envy. You know what it is? I love you means I want you for myself. I want what you have to bring me pleasure. That's the world's love. And who do you really love in that scenario? It's not them. It's you. You want what they have. You want what they can give you. It's envious. But God's love is not that way. God's love doesn't boast. It's not a bragger. It doesn't heap up praises for itself. It doesn't put oneself in the center of attention. It doesn't work a conversation so that it can come back to you. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. It doesn't puff up or blow up. Love does not put oneself above or before others in any way. And it is not rude. Arrogance and rudeness go hand in hand. See, arrogance inflates self. Rudeness deflates another. Rude gestures, comments, and jokes that belittle other people, that is not love. Love does not inflate self. Love does not deflate another. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Love doesn't argue to win. Love doesn't refuse to let it go. Love does not prove a point. Love does not insist on being right. 
Love does not strive for its own advantage. Love is not out for number one. Love is selfless. It's generous, not envious. It praises others. It doesn't praise itself. Love is humble. It's not prideful. It's kind. It's not rude. It considers the good of others as more significant than one's own way. Love is not self-centered and selfish, like these characteristics describe. You know, the young man once told his girlfriend, I love you so much. In fact, if I couldn't have you, I would kill myself. That's how much I love you. Now, he thought he was saying something really sweet and nice. So he thought. But the woman looked back to him and says, you don't love me. You love yourself. You want to have me, not love me. God's love's not that way. God's love is selfless for the sake of others, for their good, not mine, that they would be built up, not me, that I would make them receive the attention, the praise, the, the love, the, the benevolence, the good, and not myself. It's selfless. Paul goes on, as if that's not enough. Verse 5, it says, Love is not irritable or resentful. In other words, love is not easily provoked. It's not easily fired up. That's to be irritable. But also, love does not keep a list of wrongs. It doesn't simmer, 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 simmer until eventually the pot screams. You can't love if you're bitter. You can't love if you're bitter. If you're keeping a list. God could have kept a list, couldn't he? As you, every right to keep a list. Every right to keep a record of your wrongs. And he has every right as judge to hold you to every sin that you've ever committed. He can on Judgment Day, bust out that list and hold you to every sin. He has every right to keep score. And Romans 3 tells us that if that's the case, we lose. Because none of us have meet God's perfect standard. We're not righteous. We're not good in and of ourselves. Even our good works have bad motives. And so the Bible talks about all our good works outside of Christ being like filthy rags. So God has a big list. And He could hold it to you. He could hold you to it. If God held you to His list, you're doomed. But listen, but God, being rich in mercy and grace, because of His great love, He gave up His Son, the substitute, who humbly and willingly took our place. He took our list. And he paid it off in full. He took it to the cross. And if you trust in him, if you believe in him as the only Savior, then Christ puts that list in the ground in the grave and buries it. It is no more. You have been cleared of guilt. You've been cleared of your sin. Cleared of your shame. And he gives you a clean slate. More than that, he gives you his righteous, perfect life. So you're not only innocent, you're righteous. 
You've done no wrong and you've only done good, not because of what you've done, but because of what He did. Takes your list of wrongs and buries it in the ground. He buries the hatchet, literally, and then rises from the grave. That's what love does. Love deals with the list. Doesn't keep a list. And if God so loved you that way, you also ought to love one another that way. Keep no list against a brother or a sister, a wife, a husband, a family member, a distant relative. No lists, Christian. Love does not keep a list. Love will take that list and throw it at the feet of the cross. So where's your list? Who's on it and what's on it? Finally, not finally, keep going. (laughs) Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love and truth go together. You cannot, you cannot separate love from the truth. Or the truth from love. Love rejoices. Well, first, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Love doesn't look at sin and say, I approve. I love that. Good on you. Good for you. No, no, no. Love doesn't do that. Love also rejoices in the truth. Love sees justice. Love sees acts of love, kindness, and says, awesome, praise God, glory be to Christ who has given us the ability to love. Melissa Etheridge, a singer, songwriter, and gay activist, is quoted saying this, love is never wrong. Love is never wrong. Now at face value, her statement is true. Love is never wrong. But what she meant by it is wrong. When you separate love from the truth, you know what you have? You have desire. It's not love anymore. It's desire. So my desires, is what she's saying, are never wrong. And now we know that is definitely not true. Desires outside of Christ are almost always wrong. Because our hearts are deceitful and wicked. God tells us that in the Scriptures. We deceive ourselves. And and desires outside of knowing Christ and relationship with Him, they're all perverse. They're all for our own selves. They're all for our own self-glory, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Our desires without Christ are horrible. And so desire is wrong. God's love is never wrong. And God's love is never wrong. Divorce from the truth. Love and truth, you can think about them being fraternal twins. They may look different, but they always come together. Paul just said at the top of it, in the other sense, prophecy without love is nothing. It's meaningless. You might be a, a bulwark of truth. You might bring the truth two by four, the hammer. I'm all about the truth. But if you lack love, commit the same error on the other side. 
If you lack love, those truth words, those truth arrows, that truth two by four, is like a flimsy piece of rubber that does nothing and is worthless and pointless. It's air. It's like shooting bubbles out of your hand. You're, you're ineffective. Love without truth is nothing more than an emotion or feeling. Truth without love is nothing. It's meaningless. The two go hand in hand. Ephesians 4.15 says, You speak the truth in love. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love and truth together. And you know how you lean. Person, you know how you lean. You lean towards one or the other, right? Truth-driven or love-driven on the truth side and to the extreme. Maybe you're you know, bringing the truth hard, but there's no love. That's bad. Maybe on the love side, you're willing to compromise truth under the banner of love, which is not love at all. You know where you lean. But understand this, it's not a spectrum. It's not. Love and truth are not on the opposite sides of the spectrum. They're together. You need to be totally truthful and totally loving. Always both together. And so you know what side of the same coin you need to grow in. More truthful or to be truthful, or to be loving. And both come together, again, in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was both gracious and truthful, wasn't he? Grace and truth came through Jesus. He's the premier example of this. While looking upon the rich young ruler, he had compassion on him, but he didn't withhold the truth because he was afraid it was going to convict him or afraid he was going to lose him as a friend. He told him the truth. He said, you need to sell all that you have. Give him to the poor and follow me. Jesus never withheld the truth for the sake of love. Quote, unquote, love. You remember Jesus, when he looked upon the crowds with compassion, he told them they needed to count the cost to follow him. Some of them needed to give up mother, brother, sister. When the prostitute fell at his feet and was washing him with her tears and with perfume, he said with tenderness and love, Though your sins are many, they'll be forgiven. Never avoiding the sin conversation, yet never speaking the truth without love. This is Jesus Christ. We need to be a man and a woman who advocate and celebrate the truth and to be a man or a woman that refuses to speak it without love. Finally, the climax of this list. Verse 7. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and endures all things. This is the greatest lengths of love. It's another exaggeration. Love to the nth degree. Now, Paul doesn't put this list here to negate everything that he just said. Love bears all things except lies, right? It's not going to bear a lie. And so we need to read this within context. He's exaggerating here to point to the lengths that love will go. Bears all things. The first thing, you know what that means? It means to cover up or to plug a hole. That's how that word was used. And so in the context of people, it's to cover up or to look over another's faults. 
Now, it doesn't mean you cover their sin, right? We protect sinners, not the sin. We protect the people from unnecessary shame, from gossip. We're not eager to say, I told you so, or I saw that coming, or you know what so-and-so did? That's not love. Love covers up. Do your best to not shame others, to not embarrass them or set them up for public failure. Love doesn't expose your children in front of everybody. Love doesn't do that. Love has private conversations. Love goes according to order of Matthew 18, a personal confrontation, questioning and identifying what the truth is before there is any level of the audience or the group getting bigger or bigger. Love covers up. 1 Peter 4.8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. There are a lot of personality quirks, little offenses, comments that can just go, you know what, I'm going to cover that with love. I don't need to address it. I could just get past it. That's what love does. Love believes all things. It's not going to believe a lie, but it's going to entrust itself to another person. It's going to believe the best about another person. Not in a naive or foolish way. Love is tethered with the truth, but it's inclined to take people at their word unless proven otherwise. It's inclined to believe they're innocent unless proven guilty. To not always be skeptical of others. To not be anti-trusting. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love is not a pessimist. It's an optimist in nature. Not because people won't fail you, but because God doesn't fail you. So even when people do, You still have God and His promises and you hope in those. If God doesn't fail, it doesn't matter when people do because He can turn them around. He can fix this. I trust Him in this hardship or this situation. I'm hopeful. Finally, love endures all things. Love stands its ground. It holds on even when it's attacked, persecuted. Love never gives up. And again, we see Christ. Christ literally covered our sins, didn't He? By taking our place and making that great sacrifice, took our shame, took our guilt, took our transgressions and paid for them. Christ entrusted Himself to His fellow men. He entrusted Himself to disciples, get this, who He knew one would betray Him and all of them would abandon Him. He entrusted Himself to these men. He was believing in them, entrusting Himself to them. Christ had incredible hope. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Christ obviously endured. He endured the mocking, the shame, the scorn, the beatings, the pain, all the way to the point of death for the sake of love. This is Christ. Christ bears all things. Christ believes all things. Christ hopes all things. Christ endures all things. There is a portrait of him. The ultimate example of love. Follow in his footstep, Christian. Third point. The permanence of love. The permanence of love. That's what these next verses describe. Really, the the title is the beginning of verse 8. It says, love never ends. That's Paul's big point here. Now, if you're into theology, Bible reading, you know this section is often falls into the camp of whether you're a cessationist or non-cessationist. Whether you believe the sign gifts still exist or they're still practiced today or they are no 
longer. And that's, this is often the passage that's at the center of the debate, and they're trying to understand when's the perfect, when do sign gifts cease, when do they not, or if they don't cease. And I think that's unfortunate because really Paul's main point here is the top of verse 8, love never ends. His point is love. And in the conversation, there's some helpful hints as to the cessation of gifts. That's how we would interpret it here at Summit Bible Church. But the main point is at the top and at the bottom. Love never ends. He goes on to say that prophecy, tongue, special knowledge, all these things will cease. They will pass away when the perfect comes. And regardless of your interpretation of when the perfect is, here's the main point. Go down to verse 13. Faith, hope, and love abide. Do you know what abide means? They stick around. Love stays. Love doesn't stop. It doesn't cease. It doesn't have an end point. Love never ends. That's Paul's point here. He says out of those three virtues there, faith, hope, and love, he says the greatest is love, pointing back to the priority, the preeminence of love. Here's the big takeaway from that section, and you could go to you know, theology books or come ask me questions afterwards, but I want you to understand for the purpose of really the theme of the chapter, love doesn't go away. Love is permanent. Love never ends. It's everlasting. It's always relevant. It's always essential. It's always applicable in your life, Christian. And finally, it's always to be pursued. And this is where I want to land. The pursuit of love. Chapter 14, verse 1, this little command here at the front is so important. Look down, 14.1, it says, Pursue love. This is a present active imperative, which has this sense. Pursue and keep pursuing love. Pursue and keep pursuing love. Love, friend, is a lifelong growth project. Love is something you never stop learning. Love is something you never stop practicing. Love is something you never graduate from. Oh, I'm over the basics. I'm over love. I need to move on to the more theological matters. No, no, no. no. Love must be pursued and continually pursued. Pursue it and keep pursuing it. To pursue is to hunt. Hunt it down. Don't lose sight of love. Don't let it go. Don't distance yourself from it. In every aspect of your life, pursue love in your marriage. Pursue love in your parenting. And pursue love, especially in your church. Now, this is where I want to end the sermon by way of application. You miss the application of this command. And hear me out through this. You miss the application of this command. If you simply walk out of those doors and say, I need to be a better husband. I need to be a better mother. Or I need to be a more loving neighbor. You know, I need to treat my coworkers better. Yes and amen to all those things. Those are truths. Those are biblical truths that come out of a different passage, okay? Love thy neighbor as thyself, right? Husbands, love your spouses. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Yes, you need to love her. Yes, you need to love him. 
Yes, you need to love them, your children. Yes, you need to love the community. You need to show the love of Christ there. But that's not who Paul's telling you to pursue loving here. You know who he's talking about here? The church. The people you're sitting next to. That's who Paul says, love and keep loving them. So how much do you love the church? Do you love the church? Let's ask it this way. Let's, let's talk to your children. What does mommy and daddy love? Mommy and daddy love me. Yeah, good. Mommy and daddy love each other. Good. Dad loves his job. Good. That's a good thing. Mommy loves to cook. Fantastic. I love that mommy loves to cook too. Dad loves to, to golf. Dad loves video games. Mom loves art. Mom loves house decor. Does mom and dad love the church? Does mom and dad love the church? Pursue loving the church. More pointed questions. Are you patient with people here? Is your kindness for people here? When you walk into those doors, do you think, oh, what can this church do for me? How can I make myself the center of conversation at church? How does this child, how does this church fit my style or my preference? Or is it coming in looking out for the sake of others? Are you easily provoked by people in the church? You go away, oh, so-and-so said this to me. Can you believe it? How insensitive. Do you hold grudges against people in the church? Oh, the church did me wrong here, and so I just don't trust them. Do you bear with people here? Do you trust people here? Are you locking arms with people here side by side with all hope and endurance? We're standing together until the end. Do you love the church? Do you know people here well enough to love them? Let me just tell you a little Morgan proverb. This is not scripture, but I've seen it to be true as it's practice. If they're not close enough to hurt you, they're not close enough for you to love them. You need to entrust yourself to people in order to have a deep, loving, trusting relationship with them. And that means you're going to have to let them in a little bit close enough that they might hurt you. They might offend you. They might know something about you that you're like, oh, I didn't want them to know that. But do they know the burdens that they can bear in your life? Do they know the sins in your life that they need to be able to cover and love and, and vice versa for them? Do you know how to pray for them? Do you know how to serve them, how to meet their needs? You know, you're talking about spouses knowing each other's love languages. Do you know the love languages of people here in the church? How they like to be ministered to, loved, and served. And you might say, Morgan, I have a hard time trusting people. I've been burned in the church. Can I gently tell you why? You've been burned in the church because people are just like you. They're sinners. All of us are. All of us have baggage. All of us have quirks. In our personality, in our words, in our actions, there's so much sin to be covered here, and in my own life especially. But you know what? Christ loved us while we were yet sinners, didn't he? Christ died for us while we were sinners. He gave himself for unlovely, unattractive, quirky people. He gave his life for us. 
So listen to God's word here. There's no exception clause. For those who have been hurt by the church, don't pursue love. No, no, no. Pursue love and keep pursuing it, Christian, in the context of your community, in the church. Love these people. Be patient with them. Be kind. Forgive them. Serve them. Consider their needs. Bear with their baggage. And endure with these people to the end. And what a testimony that would be to the community around us. The world wants to say, hey, if they do me wrong, I write them off. And I go move to the next group. What about a community that sticks together in love? Together to the end. Pursuing love here. May we grow together in love, transformed by the renewing of our mind and conformed to the image of Christ, the Son. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, I come to you humbly knowing that I'm a sinner, knowing that I failed love. Um, So many ways come to mind, Lord, that I've personally fallen short of your standard of love, the portrait of Christ, your Son, who was perfect in his love. God, I pray that you'd give me the strength and Bring to mind, those, to remembrance, those ways that you've loved me and that you've given, given me the strength to love others similarly. I pray that for every person in this room. That first, if they don't know love, that they would know love through Christ Jesus, who is the only Savior, the only way to have right relationship with you, O oh God, and the only way that they can experience true, unconditional, selfless love. And that 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 non-Christian would believe in Jesus and then be able to turn around and love others in the same way today. And I pray for us as Christians that we would pursue love. That we would pursue it relentlessly. That we pursue it continually. That we would love our spouses. That we would love our children. That we would love those in the community, our neighbors. God, and that we would love and pursue love in the church. Help us to love the church like Christ loved the church. Willing to give his life for her. Help us to love it similarly, God. And I, I pray that as you prepare us for communion now, Lord, that we would remember the greatest act of love, the great sacrifice you made on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.